Okay, well, hello and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio, at Essence of Wellness Chiropractic Center. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are to first get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Secondly, I'd like to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research, and third, to promote and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that chiropractic science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on with today's show, and today I'm really excited to interview Dr. Lise Hesbeck. Dr. Hesbeck uh, received her chiropractic degree in 1990 from Palmer College of Chiropractic. She was a practicing chiropractor from 1991 to 2007, and from 1997 to 2007, she was involved in part-time research, mostly at the Back Research Center in Denmark. She received her PhD in 2003 on a thesis about high-risk groups and risk factors for low back pain in children and adolescents. Since 2008, she has been an associate professor at the University of Southern Denmark and senior researcher at the Nordic Institute of Chiropractic and Clinical Biomechanics. Her research focuses on two specific areas. First, musculoskeletal health in children and adolescents, and second, lifetime epidemiology of back pain. We'll be talking about these issues and more today. Dr. Hesbeck, thank you very much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Dr. Hesbeck, can you tell me uh, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Well, I didn't know anything about chiropractic. And I did think about becoming an MD, but I wasn't too keen on using medications. So I was thinking about becoming a surgeon, but... The long hours at the hospital and all that, was I wasn't too keen on it. But then I visited a high school friend who was at the time studying in uh, at Palmer College in Denport. And when I came to the college, I thought, that's it. That's what I was looking for. So really, I didn't know it existed, but I was looking for it <laughs> without knowing that. <laughs> well, that's great. So you graduated from uh, Palmer in, in 1990, and I know you practiced for... A number of years, some full-time and then part-time as well. And during those years that you were part-time, you were pursuing graduate studies. Can you tell us about your your practice during those earlier years? Uh, what what things were like in full-time practice? And then and then I'm really curious to see uh, how things changed uh, once you're going through your PhD program. I think I had just the really mainstream practice not specializing in anything particular in relation to techniques or in relation to specific uh, populations. Just mainstream chiropractic. But actually, I don't think my practice changed at all during the years where I was doing my PhD. Um, 
I did my PhD in epidemiology, so it wasn't really that close to practice. And if I went back to practice now, I might be a bit different in the clinic than I was then, but it didn't change me at the time now. That's interesting. So what what was it uh, when you were in practice that made you think, geez, I, I'd like to go back into uh, academia and pursue a PhD? Nothing. That was just inherent in me, I think. I always wanted to do research. Uh, before I knew which profession I entered, I, I knew that at some point I'd like to do research. Excellent. Now, how, so how did you specifically decide to do what you're doing now in terms of uh, pediatric, uh, chiropractic research, as well as lifetime research on the epidemiology of low back pain? Well, again, I have to admit that it was somehow coincidental. Um, when I first started to look at a research career, what I really wanted to do was to get into neurophysiology. Uh, what happens during the manipulation uh, and things like that. But it just wasn't possible uh, because of the political issues in Denmark at the time. So after trying for quite a few years actually to get through with a PhD project more related to neurological mechanisms about the manipulation, uh, I had to settle for an epidemiology PhD uh, because that was the only uh, road into the university system at the time. So it was by coincidence. But once I became deeply involved into the epidemiology, I was really happy that I was forced that way because I think it opens up so much, so many avenues of public health issues where you get more like the broad picture of things rather than digging into the details. And that actually suited me fine. Um, well, there's an amazing need for the kind of research that that you've been doing over the years, absolutely. And I just get, I mean, I've been following your work for some time now, and, and it's just exciting when I see something come out uh, by you and your colleagues. I just get excited to read about it because I know it's going to be something that contributes very nicely to the literature. And, uh, you know, it just seems like uh, this is, the timing is right for these kinds of studies, and I'm really excited to get to those studies, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. So you, you said a moment ago that if you were to go back into practice, that things might change. I'm curious, how do you think you might change things? I think I would be less focused on solving a specific problem in a specific area in a person. I think I would be more, more holistic in a way. Look at because of the lifetime perspective, uh, I would have when I was at Palmer, uh, there was a the whole philosophy about chiropractic was to treat the whole person in all different aspects. But that was the philosophy. In reality, we were taught to treat the spine, and we were taught that we our goal was to cure pain. Um, and that has been sort of the image that we have, that if you go to a chiropractor, you get a treatment and you're pain-free. But that wouldn't be my success criteria today. I would have a lot more focus on the, on the whole life situation and their previous, if we're talking about back pain, it doesn't have to be back pain, but for the example, if we're talking about an episode of back pain, I would look at the whole lifetime story about back pain 
and sort of um, make my expectations to the treatment and and make the patients consider their expectation again for what do we expect because we know that they do get well but it also returns in many 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 of our patients and if you sort of tell the patient that you're going to cure them then you're talking then you're advising against better knowledge because you know that you can cure this episode but you're not going to cure their back pain because it will return if not tomorrow if not next year then in two years time and relating that to the patient and making them understand it's not a failure if it if you get a new event in six months time it, it's a natural course then we'll deal with it at the time and maybe we can do some things to prevent it in the meantime or postpone it but having that longer perspective uh, I think would have given me more satisfaction in practice because I wouldn't have the disappointments when they came back with a new episode and it would have been better for the patients as well because it would give them more trust in me they wouldn't think three months later that now it's back so she didn't know what she was talking about she said I would be right so in that way I think I would have a longer time-wise perspective Wow, that is really good. I I have to say that in my practice over the years, I've I've come to that conclusion, but it's taken a long time uh, <laughs> to come up with that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, boy, it's amazing. So yeah, this is exactly the kind of discussion uh, that I think chiropractors need to hear. So now you have authored a lot of publications, over fifty publications in PubMed in top-notch journals such as Spine, JMPT, European Spine Journal, BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders, Best Practice and Research and Clinical Rheumatology and, and many others. So Lise, from, uh, from your perspective and, and looking at your research you know, questions over the years, uh, what, what do you think are some important research questions uh, that, you, that you have ongoing now and what kinds of things do you think you'd like to address in the future? Well, like you said before, there are a lot of important research areas. And I still think that that basic science about physiology and neurology is important. But it's not my field. The thing about the lifetime perspective and getting a better understanding of how things evolve is the reason why I've ended up focusing in on children and adolescents. Uh, and I think we need to do a lot more about chain of events. What happens? Is it does back pain just suddenly appear out of the blue, or do we have some individuals who are vulnerable to all kinds of diseases? And how does musculoskeletal health relate to the rest of the person's health, and vice versa? Um, so that sort of connection between different disorders and and the person's life situation uh, is what I would like to entangle a lot more than we're only scratching the surface so far. Perfect. Well, let's start talking about some of your articles and, and we'll get to, uh, to kids in chiropractic and the life course of back pain in just a minute. But first, I, I've been intrigued over the years uh, about your papers on on clinical tests and I found them just absolutely fascinating 
Um, so I'd like to just talk about two of them. Uh, one just came out in JMPT in 2016, and that was about validity of commonly used clinical tests to diagnose and screen for spinal pain in adolescents. And that was a, a school-based cohort study in 1,300 Danes aged 11 to 15. And in this paper, you examined whether commonly used clinical tests could classify spinal pain or predict spinal pain, and the results found that the test could neither classify current spinal pain correctly nor predict future spinal pain. And so a key takeaway of the article seemed to be that in a clinical setting, tests should be combined with other sources of information such as a thorough interview and more extensive examination of the patient. So from that research, what kinds of tests uh, did you look at in the paper and could you expand on the types of things you'd want to include in the history in the exam? The first question about what we included. We um, actually invited a focus group of school nurses because we know they examine the spine when the children start school. And we asked them which tests they did. And that was quickly done. <laughs> they didn't do much. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then we uh, had some uh, pediatric chiropractors and asked them what they would like to have included. And that's what we did. Um, we, you want me to list the specific tests? Um, maybe just give a couple examples. Like, would they be like a forward bend test for scoliosis or? Yeah. For scoliosis, I think that there was a forward bend test. And then I think there was the shoulder height difference. Um, there was... I, the one that I remember the best was the, um, I don't know the name of it actually, I forgot, but where you bend forward to see if you can touch the floor with your fingers with your knee straight. Okay. Because that's the one old school nurses used. And I think it's Schober's, but I can't, maybe that's not right. Uh, no, Schober's is where you actually measure how much the safe move when you do it, but it's a, it's the same movement, yeah. But Okay, uh, okay. They look for if your fingers touch the floor. Oh, okay, gotcha. And in front of the child, the chiropractor stands behind the child and measures the shoulder's ankle. So, yeah, the child performs the same test. Really. But from a chiropractic point of view, we did uh, range of motion and motion palpation and pain on palpation. And pain on palpation was, again, as in many other studies, the only one that had any relation to whether they actually had back pain or not. Okay. What was the thing? So what, what, what kind of things might you include in the history and the exam, perhaps otherwise uh, that that wasn't included, or, or just thinking back, like what you've learned in, in your years as a researcher now. What what are some of the key things in the history and the exam that you might want to do? I I, I don't think we could do more in the exam. I think we did everything that you could think of, uh, with your fingers in practice. But I think it. it we have to put a lot more emphasis on the history. And then um, a problem with this type of research, I was going to say that's not a problem with this type of article, is that it's often interpreted as if the test has no value. But you have to remember that some, for example, motion palpation, we don't use that to identify a person with back pain or to say anything about prognosis. We use it to find out where to treat the patient. And we haven't tested if that's valid or not. But 
what we have tested is as a screening procedure. So if you are out in the mall doing spinal screening, I think that's quite evidence-based that that's not valid. But using the examination in your practice when you have a full uh, history of the patient and you know what has happened, you know where the pain is, you know how long it's been there, mode of onset, previous history, uh, comorbidity and what have you, you can get a picture of your patient and then you can use your hands to find out more how you want to treat it. But that's a different question. As a screening tool, it doesn't work. Got it. I, I think that is such an important distinction. I'm really glad that you said it just the way you did it. It's a lot more clear in my mind now uh, what's going on with these screenings. So in the, in basically what I hear you saying is that in the context of the overall clinical consultation that these exams can be important, but as a screening tool, they're, they're not providing you with any um, particularly good information. Okay. Okay, great. Well, then another paper that you um, published with uh, Dr. Hartvigson and, uh, and others in 2015 in Chiropractic Manual Therapies looked at clinical exam findings as prognostic factors in low back pain, and that was a systematic review. And there's probably overlap with the, the last study that we just talked about, but after the synthesis of the literature, you found that there's evidence for an association between centralization and non-organic signs and outcome, but that for most of the clinical tests in low back pain, there's not any consistent evidence for an association with outcome. So based, based on what you found, uh, what suggestions do you have for clinicians? Does it go back to that you have to put this in the context of the history again, or, or are there other things that uh, uh, we might want to include on examination? Because again, it's the same thing as before. These tests are used for clinical making clinical decisions, and they were developed to make to aid in the clinical decision process. They weren't intended to say anything about prognosis or whether to or to distinguish between uh, a symptomatic and an asymptomatic person. So it, that's the context that it should be interpreted in. It doesn't, again, you can use it as a clinical tool in your decision about how and where and how often to treat, but you can't say that, well, the stop test is positive. That makes your prognosis worse. Uh, so if you use it as it's intended to be used, there's no ev evidence supporting that, but there's no evidence saying the opposite either. But just don't use these tests as prognostic indicators. There are other prognostic indicators that works, like uh, the Quebec uh, classification seems to have some value for prognosis, and the history has some value for the prognosis. So it's a matter about using the the different tests in the in the right context. That's great. That's great. So based upon what you just said that there's really not any evidence not to use them. It's just that there's not any evidence to use them either. Uh, so could we say that any of these tests are useless or <laughs> like should we not bother with some of them or well 
depends if we have anything better. As long as we don't have anything else, we have to work with what we've got. It's best practice. Yes, exactly. And I think what I see, and maybe you can, you know, tell me if you see this also, but I see when we talk about evidence-based practice, one of the pillars of that certainly is uh, the actual evidence, the research evidence. But then I think it comes down to, you know, also the other pillars, which are patient preference, what the patient wants, their values and goals, and also what the experience of the doctor is. So perhaps in the context of a particular patient, a particular test might work out okay. Yeah, I, I just see that um, uh, doing this kind of research is extremely helpful to, to us as practitioners and, and other researchers to try to figure out, you know, what, what do we need to include on the exam? What do we need to include on the, in the history to try to, to get to the bottom line and, and not do things that are, you know, not going to help us? We certainly don't want to waste our time or our patient's time if things are, are not helpful uh, as well. So, yeah, this is really, really interesting. I'd like to um, uh, talk, continue the discussion about the life course of back pain that we got touched upon earlier. And you've done a lot of work on this area as well. And it seems to have spurred your interest in children and adolescents. And there are two papers that I'd like to, to briefly discuss. And one was paper that came out in Spine Journal of 2015, and the title was Patients with Low Back Pain Had Distinct Clinical Course Patterns That Were Typically Neither Complete Recovery Nor Constant Pain. That's, that sounds fascinating. So it seems like people are, are having symptoms, but there may be some uh, times uh, where they don't have it. Is that the typical course of of low back pain? Is that how it presents typically, Lise? I don't know if that's a typical cause, <laughs> but many years ago there was a study in Norway where they asked chiropractors how many of their patients uh, had relapses and how many recovered, and they said that around 80% recovered and about 20% had relapses. That was over a year. And then they telephoned the patient and asked them, have you had any relapses? the past year and the figures were about the same roughly 80 and 20 it was just the other way around that 80% had actually had relapses and only 20% had been pain free for a year after the, the first episode was uh, wow and that was sort of the uh, the background for going more into what actually is the cause because as a practitioner we don't know that that they don't return doesn't mean they're well they might go somewhere else or they might just live with it. And what we see is actually that there are very few that become completely pain-free. They, almost all of them get better. But that's where the judgment comes in. You can look at their past history. If they've had back pain off and on for 10 years, it's not likely to go away because you adjust them three times in a row. Then you have to educate the patient. And that's where I think we have a lot of work to do to work on expectations, both for the clinician and the patient. And we can, some, there are some indicators that can tell us something about how their, how their specific prognosis would be like, is most likely to be like. So if you think... What would those, what would those indicators be? 
past history is the most important one. And then you have things like comorbidity, uh, both physically men- but also uh, mental uh, comorbidity. Depression is a strong factor. Um, so it's a, a lot about a lot non-back related factors. And that's why I think it's so important to take that really good patient history and and be aware of all the other areas. And if your treatment doesn't give the result that you're hoping for, then start thinking more about the other areas of that patient's life because it's all related. I, I guess that's where it gets back to the to the lifestyle and the holistic type of things that you're talking about at the, the beginning of the talk today and that if you were back in practice you'd do more of that. I guess that's that has been informed by your research, yeah. sounds like. But it's taken time and I haven't been in practice. Great. Now there, go ahead, sorry Lise. No, no, fine, your turn. Okay, uh, so the, the next paper um, that I want to talk about is a paper that came in uh, came out in best practice um, clinical rheumatology and this was a paper on low back pain across the life course and I I found that was a really interesting read uh, and I think this was the paper correct me if I'm wrong that um, you had a you had a discussion that back pain can be like the the common cold um, was that this paper I don't remember. I use that analogy often. <laughs> well, it seems like the what we've been talking about already is that uh, back pain can come, it can go. Um, what what I've experienced a lot over time is that patients have the expectation that you know this pain just came on. It's it's probably going to be transient, but they want some help over it. They don't expect the pain essentially ever to come back. Uh, honestly, I think some of them never expected to come back. Uh, so maybe that's where the the education comes in. But what what do we know? Some some details over the the course of a lifetime. Like how common is back pain in in children, for example? And and you know, do children who have back pain are they uh, likely to experience back pain in adulthood as well? You know, when you first start out as a researcher, you, you sort of just go with the flow and make the studies that come along and where the opportunities are. And one of the opportunities that came my way quite early in my career was to look at a large cohort of Danish twins age 12 to 20. And then they were they were followed for, well, for the rest of their lives. They're still followed. But we had data at the time for when they were in their 20s. So from the teens to the 20s, we could see that the ones who reported back pain when they were teenagers were also the ones that reported back pain when they were in their 20s. And that was back in uh, the, yeah, 2003, four, something like that. And that was at a time where there was still a lot of focus on back pain in the workplace. And it just didn't make sense that it was because of the workplace that you had back pain when the same people had the same type of back pain before they entered the workforce. So that was 
that one analysis was probably the one that uh, changed my career into focusing on the young. And it's only been confirmed with everything we've done since. And that's where the common goal comes in as well. Because if you ask children if they've had back pain, or at least teenagers, they more or less all say yes. And we've all had a cold too, but who cares? What we want to look for are the ones that have a risk of developing pneumonia. Because the ones with the most frequent and the most intense back pain in adolescence are the ones who are likely to have intense and frequent back pain in adulthood. Um, so if you want to talk about prevention, we have to start early. The work for, When they enter the workplace, that's too late. So you can make a lot of interventions in better chairs or better tables or better lips. But that's damage control. If you want to get to the root of the problem, you have to start in childhood, I believe that. Wow, that's that's great. Well, let's talk about the the children and adolescents and, and their experience a little bit more. A paper that just came out in 2016 in the Brazilian Journal of Physical Therapy uh, titled Musculoskeletal Pain in Children and Adolescents. Um, it, you know, I, I've it, it's really bizarre, I think, but I, I've still I still read commentary uh, or even in some articles there's suggestion that there's the, the the pain that children experience in their back or spine is not all that prevalent, and I th I think your research is clearly showing that uh, this is not correct. Uh, why do these why do these uh, why do we see this? Do you think is it just that the information is uh, not getting out there, or people are just stuck in their mindset, or yeah, it takes time to change mindset. Um, you only have to go 20 years back, and if there was a, a child or a teenager presenting with your MD or whoever um, with back pain, it was probably because they didn't want to go to physical education or because they had a fight with their peers and didn't want to go to school. or If they couldn't find any other reason, then it was probably due to growing pain. It just it didn't exist because in people's minds it was related to wear and tear. And, and that's been the way you've looked at back pain and knee pain and hip pain for generations. And we can't change that in a decade. But I believe we're getting there. We, we see now that at least parts of society are starting to realize that children might have back pain. They, they've always known they had knee pain. But now they're starting to realize that the rest of the musculoskeletal system can suffer as well, regardless of age. And we do see that in, in a sample of 13 to 15-year-olds. We saw an increase just over those two years that was quite substantial. And if we look at those who had the pneumonia type back pain, the ones that said they had often back pain and who had uh, more than five, I think, I don't remember, but who had some severity measure as well. It had to be at a certain point on the, um, on the pain scale. That was about 14% when they were 13, and that raised to almost 19% when they were 15. So that's one out of 20 adolescents that have 
back pain that's severe enough to impact their lives. We can't ignore that. No, we, we definitely can't ignore it. Uh, your, your research has found uh, back and neck pain as major causes of disability in, in adolescence and up to a quarter of cases there are impacts on school or physical activities. And what you've also found is that adolescents with musculoskeletal pain commonly seek care and use medications for their condition uh, and that there may be a link between musculoskeletal pain in adults or adolescents and certainly chronic pain as you're alluding to. Um, just curious, uh, you know, when, when we see kids taking medications early, um, obviously I don't think that's going to get to the root cause. Uh, it may alleviate some of their symptoms. So does get, do you think the, um, in your mind now, and, uh, and this is probably going to involve some speculation, I guess, uh, because I don't think we have all the research for it, but do you think this is where it gets back to the holistic aspects again? We, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, maybe not having children sit as much in school or having what some people call an active, uh, active school or moving schools. Um, is it that type of thing that we should be doing with kids? Should we, you know, be getting them adjusted? What kinds of things do you think we can or should be doing? Ask me in ten years' time. Right now, we have we, we have an RCT on school children, uh, where they actually have two types or two groups where one gets state-of-the-art treatment with uh, exercises and advice and maybe taping whatever and but no manipulation and the other group gets the same but including manipulation and that's for children with back pain but it also includes if they have any other musculoskeletal problems they'll be treated the, uh, the same way so that should get some light on whether we can improve the, because then we follow them with SMS questions every week over a period of several years. So that should tell us something about whether treatment can actually improve the course. Um, but a, a more exciting aspect is that we are right now starting up a kindergarten project where we include all the children in the municipality here in Denmark. When they are in kindergarten, we do baseline testing on just about everything. Uh, motor performance, uh, self-perceived motor performance, physical activity and general well-being, language development, cognitive ability, cognitive development, uh, just everything that you normally could think of that it affects their general quality of life. Then we will follow these kids for the next 12 years with SMS tracking every two weeks and ask if they've had any musculoskeletal problems. So hopefully that way we can get an idea about when do the problems start, how, how do they start, is there some sort of sequence of events, chain of events where you can see that hey this kid is starting on a musculoskeletal route. Um, so so looking back at what happened, were there any indicators when they were four years old that could have told us that? 
For instance, if they had poor motor performance, did that influence how their skeleton and their muscles developed? And could we... Because if it does, then maybe a, a, an intervention that improves motor performance is indicated as prevention. Or maybe we can't prevent anything, but then we could maybe we can find out when the problems start and then start treating early rather than waiting till we have or they have developed poor uh, motor control, poor uh, motor uh, patterns, patterns of movement. Uh, so I'm I'm quite excited about because we'll do a lot of filming of these children as well. We have some uh, labor, not laboratory, um, really sensitive software where you've, and you have cameras in a circle, so you get a 3D pictures of them doing certain movements like jumping over a box and running and what have you. And then you can actually measure angles as well. Are the ones with extraordinary high valgus formation, are they the ones that risk? data in life and so forth. So when we, 10 years down the road, has identified the ones that are high-risk children, then we can go back and see what were the indicators back in kindergarten. So that's what I'm going to do today. Yeah, hence, hence, uh, hence ask you in 10 years. <laughs> I love it. Well, that, that study sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm sure there's never been anything like that uh, at any point, I've never certainly seen anything like that. So that's just unbelievable. So we look forward to that for sure. Now, I want to get back to the pediatric chiropractic papers that uh, that you're working on currently and that a couple of papers that were previously published. And I, I think it's probably going to be a short discussion about uh, what some of the pediatric chiropractic research shows at this point. A paper uh, that you published in 2010 in chiropractic and osteopathy, and then another paper in JMPT in 2009. Uh, we're talking about children in chiropractic care, and that uh, one of them, for example, in JMPT uh, was entitled "Children in Chiropractic Care: A Window of Opportunity." And in these papers, you detected a paradox within chiropractic that. The major reason for chiropractic patients, pediatric patients, to attend a chiropractor is spinal pain, but there, there really haven't been um, any adequate studies in this area. But it seems like you are engaging right now in some really large studies, and I, I believe you already alluded to it, where you're taking a, a group and you're looking at uh, their motor, motor skills and um, this is, I believe, the children aged 9 through 15. So maybe we can talk about that paper, uh, which was a paper that came out in Chiropractic Manual Therapies in 2016. Lead author was Dissing. And in that one, you're looking at uh, conservative care with or without manipulative therapy and the management of back and neck pain in Danish children aged 9 through 15. And this was a protocol for randomized trial, but it I don't know how far you are into the study, but I'd love to to talk about this because it seems like an, a really amazing study. And if I'm reading it correctly, the protocol, certainly there's never been anything done like this in chiropractic and certainly not to 
the kinds of numbers of children that you have in this study. This is uh, amazing. Can you tell us about this paper? Well, we just finished cleaning the data, so I don't know anything about the results yet. But it came about as a continuation of a, a, a really a school-based project that was looking at the, the physical education as an intervention for lifestyle dis- diseases. And including in those lifestyle diseases was the musculoskeletal pain. And that was a six-year study. And in the last three years, we were involved in treating the children. And that's where we nested the RTC in that setting. So we have about 350, I think, plus minus 20, uh, included in the trials. It's not huge, but hopefully it'll tell us something. The thing is that because the control group really gets state-of-the-art treatment without manipulation, um, if there's a difference between the groups, it's purely related to the manipulation itself and not everything else around it, which is a quite different approach to an other study we are doing, um, also an RCT, but about infantile colic, um, because there we're looking at the whole chiropractic intervention where the child gets manipulation, mobilization, um, specific uh, exercises, and so forth. Whereas the control group, they just come into the chiropractor and are held for five minutes and comes out again. So it's two different ways of looking at it, where one looking at the manipulation by itself, and the other one looking at the chiropractic intervention as a pragmatic package for what is needed. Yeah, and how large is the uh, RCT on the the headache? And or uh, I guess that was the infantile colic. So it sounds like you have uh, several several studies going. But how how large was this one on the colic? The colic. Uh, well, actually, we started it four or five years ago, but we had to give up because we couldn't recruit. But we've just started again in a new setting. And it seems to be working, so we're keeping our fingers crossed, but we're aiming for 200 children. Wow. Um, and the same thing for the headache study that you just mentioned. That's also an RCT. That's chiropractic treatment of school children with chronic headache, really chronic. They have to have it for at least four times a week for more than six months. Wow. How, how prevalent is chronic headache in school children? Terribly prevalent. I, I didn't believe it before I saw it, but our project uh, coordinator, who's the chiropractor driving the, the project, she's been out in, she started with two schools and six to 14 year old, and within, oh, I don't remember the figures, but I think in two months, you had 40 children enrolled. It's something in that scale. And that's only from, from four schools. So one thing wow. is that you have to fulfill the criteria, but you also have to be willing to engage in an RCT in a chiropractic clinic. And even with both criteria fulfilled, they just keep coming in from a relatively small geographical area. So that's almost scary how many are out there that don't get any help. It is scary. And not just the headaches, but all the other musculoskeletal things that you mentioned. Uh, and that 
I'd really encourage people to read the 2016 paper in the Brazilian Journal of Physical Therapy uh, entitled Musculoskeletal Pain in Children and Adolescents. I think that's a phenomenal paper and it's a, it's a full text article that you can uh, can get through PubMed and just Google it. I, I'd encourage all, all practitioners to get a copy of that and read through it. It's really illuminating. Well, Dr. Hesbeck, this has uh, been an amazing uh, chat with you today. And um, before I let you go, um, are there any last words, uh, any summary that you'd like to give chiropractors or anybody else that uh, might be listening? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot or anything. No, no, you don't at all. <laughs> <laughs> really, I think the main thing is to be sensible. And, I mean, forget about the cookbook approach. People are individuals. Look at the whole person. Look at their previous history. And apply yeah. Not a cookbook from a seminar. Exactly. Exactly. That That's great advice. Uh, I guess one last thing I'd like to ask you. Part of what we like to do with the podcast is to get students, chiropractic students, and people who are already chiropractors, maybe out in practice and thinking about a career in chiropractic research. Can you could you give them uh, any advice as to what you've learned and wh what you think may be needed in the future? All type of research is needed, but we need good practitioners as well. But I can say that, at least for me, getting into research has been really fulfilling because you just having the luxury of uh, of focusing on something and, and really delving deep into it is wonderful if you have that type of personality and just go for it. Well, that's great. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast with me. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. I've got a lot of different takeaway points that I'm going to start thinking about differently in my own practice and I'm sure other chiropractors listening to this will, will also hear the message and I hope many patients will actually listen to this talk as well because it has a lot of great educational points and just factors on on uh, you know how to perceive uh, this whole issue about back pain, headaches, neck pain, etc., in children and adolescents, and across the lifespan, of course, through adulthood. So thanks again so much for being on the podcast.